0: you get
1: very connected to what you're writing mm. there is a moment where a book switches over isn't there where whereby you know your book you've usually got i mean i book, my books take about two two and a half years something like that two years yeah and that first year is so messy and then something clicks and then you just have that connection and you know what they're going to do in a way just just because you know the character
0: Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Darrawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to a very special Craft of Writing episode of Rights for Women. Today I'm speaking to Sarah Winman about her new novel, Still Life. I've recently finished reading Still Life. It's, it's a rollicking saga of a novel that uh, I just found so beautiful. And by the end of the story, I was actually really sad to leave the characters and found myself crying, not necessarily because it was sad and I don't want to give away any spoilers, um, but just because I didn't really want to part with the characters. And to me, that's a sign of a fantastic story and a fabulous writer. So I'm really excited today to be able to talk to Sarah about how she actually crafted this wonderful novel, Still Life. But first, here's a little bit about Sarah. Before turning her hand to writing, Sarah was an actress. She worked in theatre in her 20s and early 30s, but by 1992, she decided that she wanted to write a novel. Her highly acclaimed debut novel was When God Was a Rabbit, and it's a story about childhood, eccentricity, loss, and love. It was an international bestseller and won Sarah multiple awards, including New Writer of the Year in the Galaxy National Book Awards and the Newton First Book Award. Sarah's second novel, A Year of Marvellous Ways, was actually the first or second, I can't quite remember now, uh, but audiobook that I listened to. And it's about the relationship between 89-year-old Marvellous, who lives alone in a remote Cornish Creek, and Drake, a young soldier uh, left reeling by the Second World War. It's about their relationship and it's so beautifully written. It was the first audiobook, as I said, that I listened to and it captivated me with its wonderful characters, its beautiful writing and a hint of magic realism. It too was a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller. Sarah's third book was Tin Man and it was published in March 2017 and it explores the triangular relationship of Ellis and Michael who have been inseparable since boyhood and Annie, who walks into their lives and changes nothing and everything. Sarah's new novel, Still Life, is what the one we're going to be talking specifically about today. It's recently been published by Fourth Estate. It came out in June this year, 2021. When I first heard that this novel was being published, I was really excited about the prospect of reading it. And I reached out to Sarah via Instagram, and I was so delighted when she agreed to be a guest on Rights for Women. I've recently finished reading it. As I said, it is a heartwarming story of friendship, found family, truth, and beauty. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Sarah Winman to the Ruts for Women Convo Couch. Let's my- talk about writing and you, and you know, <laughs> all of that stuff. Well, I've done a little intro on you, Sarah, so the listeners um, will know a little bit about you, but. Before we, we get into sort of talking about the nitty-gritty of writing, could you tell us a little bit about your career and how you actually came to writing? Because you were in acting for some time prior to that, weren't you?
1: Yeah, I was acting, you know, I was probably acting probably 10 years too long because by the time I started writing, I I wasn't getting much work at all. So I was quite heavily in debt and I'd also, my father wasn't well at the time. He was, he'd been pretty ill and my parents needed some help. So I offered that. But but generally, I was stuck, actually. I was stuck, as a lot of actors or have been. I've heard the conversation, like, I don't know what else I can do mm. because I'd been out of the natural workforce for so many years that my CV was just about acting and bit parts in telly. And I, I just was at that point, I had no idea what I was going to do. So the instinct said, I need to learn something. That's all I remember. And I didn't know whether I was going to do um, an open university degree. I just knew that my brain really, really needed to engage in a different way because the sluggishness of not working or or still holding on to that desire of acting was just, you know, was making me pretty low. So I thought, okay, well, why don't I go and do some tester kind of classes? Because I have have a long time as well since I've been out of the classroom. So I went to City Lit, which is an adult education center. And I think I've, I came across the prospectus recently. I never thought it was a creative writing because it, it didn't have that formality. And we didn't talk the language of, of how people talk today.
0: Okay. It was a very
1: it, it was more humanities. And that's I'm not saying that as a derogatory for the person who led it. She was brilliant. She was a poet. It was just the gentleness of it. And we would look at text and it was lovely. And then at the end, she said, if you want to do this particular exercise, you can. This was to everybody. And some did because it was so mixed. You know, we had some oldies and we had some, you know, younger than me and some people who were just curious, some people who wanted to get out of the house. You know, there, wasn't, there was no professional writers who were planning on doing this course. So right. we were mixed. And I did the, I did the exercises because, as I said, I wanted my brain to engage and I wanted to do something different. And so I did those exercises. And so... I did two terms of that. And then at the end, I had 40,000 words of a novel I never expected to write. Wow, fantastic. I think the point of that is it's about following that creative instinct, that real nudge. Never let that gut voice go, you know, even if it sounds so bizarre, follow it. Mm. And, And then the process of entering into a writing environment was so smooth. So I had the forty thousand words. My acting agent was affiliated with a literary agency. I gave it to these forty thousand words to my acting. Could I, acting agent? Could you please see if there was anyone who would read this? He said, "Yeah, of course." Two days later, I get a call from a man called Robert Kasky saying, "We have to have lunch." We had lunch. He asked for twenty five thousand words more, and he said, "I'm your agent."
0: That's amazing.
1: Now that wasn't Rabbit. That was a first book, which was actually precursor to Tin Man. It was the original Tin Man
0: was ah. the first book.
1: Robert absolutely always said, this book is going to get made. This book will be made. This book will be published. So I should say, not a film. And it wasn't. And I was hugely disappointed because of course, I'd had so much rejection with acting. Yeah, But for some reason, I got on a train. My, we still have, have my grandparents' little home in Cornwall. I got on a train and I was heading down there. And while I was on that train, just some basic ideas for Rabbit came to me. And so the disappointment went straight into being proactive, I suppose. Mm. And I started to write that. And that's kind of how it went. So there was no moment where I said, I've got to be a writer. I want to be a writer. It was very much a turning point in, in my creativity, really. And, and that, very, that voice that I totally trust now telling me, go here.
0: Mm. Did you find that voice easier to trust with because of your acting experience, do you think?
1: No, I think it was age, actually. Okay. I think it was. I think I'd reached an age. Remember, I was probably in my forties at that point. Mm. I came to I came to the good parts in my life quite late. I was a late developer for whatever reason, you know, probably many reasons. I think what staying too long in acting did was actually dull that voice. Right. I didn't listen to it because my head was so obsessed and so engaged in wanting. Wanted to still do it. But by then, it wasn't a creative venture. Mm. It was a way out. You know, I needed to earn a living. I needed to earn some money. It's the only way, which is daft, because now I step back. There's plenty of things. But I was still in that almost 20-year-old mindset of this is the only thing that I want to do and the only thing that I can do, which is, it is, is nonsense. And, it's, and that's too obsessive, I think, for creativity. I think creativity is softer than that. Mm. And it needed me to move through life. And it me- needed... It needed my father to be ill. It needed me to get a good dose of the importance of the real things, and it needed me to engage and be kind to myself. I think that was it. I really needed to be kind and to soften. And when I did, that voice was so loud, you know.
0: I love that. I love that. So When God Was a Rabbit ended up being your debut novel, and Mm. it it was a very successful book as a debut. How was that for you, you know, being launched into a career like that almost jettisoned into your novel writing career
1: well I think as I've said I was in my 40s I was probably what 45 46 so I had a different level of I suppose agency or self-confidence to some degree Mm. you know very different so and I think what was very important I'd had 30 years well, not 30 years at that point, 25 years, 28 years of an acting career and not a successful one. I mean, I say the success was the fact that I'd kept going, which is huge
0: yes. in, industry, yeah.
1: in any creative industry. And so I knew the value of that moment. It was as simple as that. I absolutely knew the value. And what that moment turned into, it turned into a quiet moment. So the day the deal was done, was a Monday, and my agent phoned me. And I remember I was it was really rainy because it was it had been January, yeah, maybe it was coming to the end of winter, so I'm, I'm maybe March, but it was a very rainy day. I was I was having a nap. I was sitting in bed. I, I know I was there, and it was Monday afternoon. Robert called me. He said, "It's done. You know, your book sold. Congratulations." I still get a bit goosey about yeah, it because we need yeah. to go and <laughs> celebrate, and I went and I was crying, and I said, nah, I I don't want to. I just." Just want to sit here, you know. Yeah. And because it was it was the culmination of all of those moments as a young person and acting. And I really wanted to do something with my creativity. It was nothing about fame, it was nothing about that. I just wanted to earn a living doing what I loved. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly had this moment, sort of 26 years later. And he said, come on, we have to go out. I said, all right, then I'll go, let's go out. And there's a restaurant down from me that I've always been to called St. John. And they have a restaurant. They also have a little bar area. We always went to the bar area. And it's very different today. But when we used to go on Mondays, it was empty. It was a very quiet, you know, you might get people coming in after the Monday night films, but generally it was quiet. So we went there and I knew a lot of people who were working there and we sat and he was facing me because it was a big deal for him as well. Mm. You know, he he put so much trust, and he still believed the first book should have been met. Yeah, it should have been published. And we just sat there, sort of looking at the table, smiling. And he knew I I don't really drink bubbles, so he went and got the best wine we could. And we just sat there and smiled at each other and was quiet. And a couple of waiters came by and they said, "Sarah, how are you?" And I went, "Oh, fine." And Robert was was almost gesturing like. Well, you're gonna tell them the news. And they said, How's work? And I went, Oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's okay. And he's like still gesturing. And it and it was such a private moment I see now looking back. It was it was to do with just us at the table. And to just sit with it. And I still do. And there were so many people, you know, my partner partner was so amazing around it. But it was, it wasn't the big, woo-hoo, you know, pop the corks. It's it I just There was so much value and so much had gone before and so much heartache and doubt and fear and all of that had gone before. And and it was almost as if I wasn't going to give that moment away to something exuberant. It wasn't a high energy. It was a very grounded energy. Mm. I think that was probably what it was. Mm.
0: It's a lovely story. And, of course, that was followed by The Year of Marvellous Ways, which I have to tell you is I can't remember now if it was the first or second audio book I ever listened to. And, yeah. and it was such a beautiful narration on the audiobook. It was wonderful. And uh, I was just really captivated by Marvellous and the whole story. It's really stayed with me. Yeah, And, and, oh, and Tin Man came next. Yeah.
1: I did. Yeah. I love marvelous. It was the start of of them all going. Oh my god! It's such a different book. You write so differently, which you know. And then of course Tin Man came, and they go, Oh my god! You write so differently. But I think it's a good point to actually break in and say, I don't. You can't change your voice.
0: You know, yeah. you can't.
1: <laughs> you might be able to do it as an exercise. You know, write for a few for a few pages in in the in the voice of Hemingway, or you know, as a. But you can't write another book with another voice. So. Let's say for any maybe writers who are really starting, voice is you, voice is your character. You know, that's that's it, it's your personality. And of course it matures. That's Mm. what it does. It matures and you have different interests and you approach things in a different way. And this is why publishing gets so caught up with, it's different, it's not. Don't ever get frightened by that. Always trust your development. For me, I was writing a book sort of every four years in this most incredible period of my time, which I still hold from my mid forties onwards, mm. which is a great time for a woman. Of course, I'm going to approach things differently. Of course, you know, I might have something over here, but then I'll go here. And what's different is the tone. It's like a filmmaker. They might use a different color grading. They might use different music to open up so that you're setting the tone for people. My books is just a different tone. And why shouldn't they be? Because I have so many interests and so many things that I care about or so many things that I want to protest about. And that's why, that I I approach it with the next thing. Okay, this is what I want to say. And yet, if you look through all books, there's a theme running through them all, and there is a maturity of writing running through them all. Mm. You just get, you know, where we started here. It's almost like, you know, you might get a painter. Let's throw, let's say Rothko. He started off figuratively, and then you start to see how it goes becomes abstract, but all those stages were there, and that's what I feel as a writer. They're all there, you know. They're not so different.
0: Yeah, there's that progression, isn't there? Like there you is say, a and, you, and and why would we want to stay the same? You know, like I think yeah, people
1: do. That's great, mm. but I I haven't, and I might. I might just, I might just settle on onto something, or you know. But at the moment, it's the my creative process is far too valuable to do what the publishing industry expects me to do.
0: Mm, mm. I've
1: been in one of those industries. (laughs) You know, I have. And so, you know, it's lovely to to be able to start again and to express myself in the way that I choose to.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. So Still Life came out this year in, I think it was out here in Australia in June. Tell us about Still Life, what it's about, and then we can get into the inspiration and, and the characters and all that sort of thing.
1: I mean, it's a story that, that spreads over four decades, so a very wide story in many ways. It starts in 1944, goes to 1979, and it's this chance meeting in wartime on a Tuscan roadside between an aging art historian, Evelyn Skinner, and a young soldier and globe maker called Ulysses Temper. And this is, it, it's, it's a meeting that they both need. That becomes clear as the book goes mm. on, but they both need it. And it's a meeting that kind of shapes the rest of their life. And they're forever in each other's minds. After that initial meeting, Ulysses is heading to his captain in a villa where there has been a discovery of artworks. And this is what happened during before the war started, before the Germans enter it, entered Italy, that the artworks, the major artworks at the Pitti Palace and the U- Uffizi were hidden. So they discovered this particular painting. And... It's not the same kind of motif as we've had with sunflowers, but but everything is about this moment, and what a moment can do for you. Mm-hmm. After the war, Ulysses goes back to post-war London, which is grey and dreary, and then eventually he comes back by a chance to Florence to live, and that's when you know a different way that the the, the story takes off and about found family, about mm-hmm. the people who come and join him there, and and yeah it's it's it is about found family most of it is about opportunity it's it's about class it's about who has the right to talk about art it's about beauty the importance of beauty it is of course about love and it's about unity i think mm. in in a great way
0: it's definitely about so many things and you know that for me was one of the the beauties of the book is that you were so drawn into the lives of these characters and that whole world, you know, that you created. And it was being in lockdown. It was so beautiful to travel to Florence. I have to tell you. So thank you for that. My (laughs) pleasure. I'm really glad. Yeah. I
1: wrote it. I, I didn't write it in lockdown, but I was, we were in lockdown when I was coming to the end of it. Okay. So it was, you know, for, for about the last, yeah, March, April, May, June. Oh, actually. Yeah. Probably the last five months of writing the book. It was very much sort of mm-hmm. in lockdown, so mm. uh, and it was it was lovely to go there and to just escape on the page. So I do understand that, and I and I've been drawn to other books in that way.
0: Yes, for sure. So as you say, Sarah, it is a really big story. It covers a very, you know, a long period of time, and it has a great big cast of characters, some fabulous settings. What was the in, initial inspiration, do you think? Like, can you pinpoint one thing that sort of set you off on the, on the path to writing the book, or was it a whole yeah, number of totally. different things?
1: No, no, no. It was one thing. I, I was in Florence in 2015 just on a little break. It was January. Really great time to go to the city is, is sort of December and January. Get far more mm. for your money, by the way. So I was there, and I was in a restaurant, and I noticed some photographs on the wall of the city underwater basically. And I had no idea what this was about. I mean, it was obviously Florence, it wasn't Venice, which you, your mind immediately thinks because mm. of the Duomo and you know the other kind of areas of the cityscape. Spoke to the owner and the owner brought out some books and explained that it was the great flood of November, 1966. And I'm like, right. So, but the story hadn't got me at that point. And then he starts to tell me about the predominantly young men and women who came in from all over the world to help clean up the city to help out delivering food to older people who, who came and cleaned up artworks and they were known as the mud angels and that was the mm. point where me and story collided and joined hands because I thought what a oh, of course I did what a romantic idea that you just travel and you just like clean up art and I remember it's you know 20 years after the second world war mm. this need for unity in Europe was strong and the young people were probably you know, the generation after the people who went to war. So there was this need to connect with Europe, you know, and to make sure what had happened previously wouldn't happen again. So, so there they were. And, and that's it. I thought, okay, I'd love to write about this. I would love to. And then I was contracted for Tin Man, so I just pushed it t- to the back of my mind, and I knew I was writing Tin Man. And then in those years, which was about three, I basically – no, it wasn't three. Yes, it might have been. Anyway, I tried to push push it aside because I was thinking I did everything not to write about Florence. Okay. Because does the world need another book on Florence? It has been written about to death. And and I and the other thing is, I don't know Florence. You know, the other books, all place that I've written about, I have known very well. And it was the first time I didn't know about someone. I found the whole thing daunting. I didn't know where to start. I I then was trying to say, well, I don't even like Florence. I did everything to push this story away. But my experience now, this is the fourth one, is that when it latches on, story latches on like a burr mm. on a jumper, you know, it's almost as if it's flying around and going, you, you'll do. You're the one who can tell this. It's very difficult to shake it off. And so then what happened was the disaster of Brexit and my country just showing It's true colours and it's hateful rhetoric. And what that did, I mean, I I was feeling bogged down politically and by all the news. And and then what I thought was, you know, number one, I'm going to write a pro-European novel because it's been such an important part of my life. And also, I'm going to go, I'm going to write this book as an act of, almost like as an act of resistance, but joy as an act of resistance. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make the tone entertaining and joyful and that is what is going to drive this book. And if I don't if I can't write that on the page I'm going to have to just go and do something else for the day, but it really really does need that because I need that right now. And I need to believe in that and I need to believe in people and I need to believe in the unity of people because they are the people I know and at the moment the press and this awful government is trying to pander to and also say that we're you know we're quite divided and mm-hmm. I don't believe so that's how that was the initial how it started and then I rebuilt from that then I read a lot of bibliography and thought okay yeah wartime of course wartime is really interesting and and then where will I go up to Italian friends said don't go into the 90s politically so after the war about 40 years there was a there was a relative stability apparently in Italy between the Christian Democrats and the communists in the 70s there was something called years of lead which you know were pretty horrific but But that was the other thing, getting to know what Italy was and trying Mm. to just place it in something relatively stable. Let's not call it peaceful, but stable, because I also didn't know about Florence, but I also don't know about Italian politics. (laughs) So for a two year (laughs) project,
0: that's a big ask. So that's why
1: it was placed in that sort of time frame.
0: Yeah, and of course all the art research that you must have done as well. I mean, I, I take it that you are an art lover anyway, but there is an, an enormous amount of, you know, detail in the, the artworks that Evelyn, you know, talks about and curates and all that sort of thing. So that must have been a big part of the research too. It was. I am an art lover, but I can't
1: really talk about art in that way. You know, many times it's it's a very private relationship when you stand in front of a painting. In the same way, if I read a really, really good book, I find it very difficult sometimes to talk about it. Mm. You know, I don't, that's not the way, you know, I don't have that kind of critical mind that I can then necessarily talk about stuff. Or the way I do talk about art is probably the way you would talk about art or anyone. And I think that was the balance was, I have to be better than that. I can't tell people what they already know. Mm. But the other side is I can't then go to a very academic way because I'll lose people too. So I need to find something whereby it engages people because they don't know this stuff or it's actually talked about in a way that they don't know but is also accessible. So I was very lucky. I I have told this story before, so forgive anyone who listens, but I was having acupuncture and wasn't my usual acupuncturist and she was an Italian acupuncturist and she knew I was writing. She knew I was writing about Italy. She's putting the needles in. So she goes like, Sarah, how are you doing? I went awful. I can't believe I'm, my protagonist is an art historian and I don't know really anything about Florentine art. And I haven't got an art historian friend. I need one. She goes, what do you need? What do you need? And I said, what do you mean? She says, if you could have anyone, who would you have? And I went, "Okay." Anglo-American or certainly English speaking, an art historian who, who lives in Florence today, who went during the flood, so she was a mud angel and who has time for me and, and, and somebody who I could engage with. And she goes, okay, hold on. And she got her phone out. She started to text somebody while she's putting in the needles and then we hear, bing, and she goes, hold on. And she goes back to her text and she goes, okay, okay, okay. That was Monica. And she starts texting again, A couple of needles, bing, goes off and she goes, okay, this evening you're gonna get an email. And that evening, I did get an email. I had an Anglo-American art historian who still lives in Florence, who went during the flood, who was a mud angel, and she was called Stella Rudolph. The next day, I was flying to Florence, and I met up with her, and I had a a friendship of two years. She thought I was an art historian student, so she kept sending me to these obscure churches when all I wanted to do was follow her around to the markets. She's going, no, 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 no. And, and there was a period where I wasn't really getting what I wanted because she was a brilliant academic. She'd been doing this for a long time. But I also knew she was eccentric. And I, and I was trying to just mine that. It was a little place in her. I knew if I could get there, I would get exactly what I wanted. But I had, to, I had to ask her the right questions. So I started really low. And it really surprised her. So I said to her one day when we were having um, a glass of wine, I said, Stella, you know, what did you think about Michelangelo? So embarrassing. And she looked at me aghast. And she goes, Michelangelo? Oh, oh, well, he was an earthquake. And I was like, I've got you. Because I'd never heard him described like that. Only somebody who has 40, 50 years of academic brilliance would know why they were calling him that. And suddenly the language that I was getting from her was so beautiful and poetic and brilliant and I was like and basically I just followed her around and I asked her what I needed to about beauty the moment where Evelyn looks down at the at the yellow flower on her birthday that was that was Stella mm. we, we had that moment together and she said you know my mind is taxed when I look at paintings especially with attribution I look at the the, the brush strokes and I have to look at the quality of the canvas, but when I look at nature, nature requires nothing more than to be appreciated. And I, it was just like, oh, my goodness, I love oh. you. You're just amazing. And so without her, this book wouldn't have happened.
0: What a, gift. Happened what
1: a gift. In the way that, that it did.
0: Fantastic. So she was obviously a huge help in writing Evelyn. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you have this amazing cast of characters. So, so once you actually accepted, I guess that that this story was for you and you you were for it. You know, you met with the story and thought, yes, I am diving into this. Yeah. How do you then go about creating such a story, Sarah? So, do you start with character? Do you start with your research and then see where that takes you? What's your process around that?
1: Um, generally, it's the same. I I kind of I have an in, an initial character which was. Ulysses temper so the name came because it had to be a different name and then I was also playing on that that the kind of entertainment that Ulysses people would think oh you know is there a bit of classic you know is it really heavy sort of literary so, sort of style or that but it wasn't mm-hmm. it was as we know it was about a greyhound so I was always going to be playing really from the start but I didn't know the start I had an ending I always have an ending which gives me somewhere to go and Usually that's what I would call a cinematic ending. So it's a very visual ending. And and then I, I get started. And I started where I did with this book because I read a book called Florentine Art Under Fire. And that was about an American soldier, art historian, Frederick Hart, who was driving around Tuscany while the bombs were falling. So similar period of time, sort of August 1944, Soldiers hadn't yet gone into Florence. He's driving around and the explosions are happening. And then he came across this little restaurant, I suppose, in the hills and people having lunch while the artillery is going off. And he writes, he said, you know, there were some French captains there and there were some Italian custodians and there was a couple of English spinsters. And there was, and I was like, what do you mean? English spinsters. Why would they be there in wartime? Which apparently they always were, always popping up. And I thought, oh, I'll have them. What a brilliant start that <sighs> these... English spinsters, and in anyone who knows me, I would probably be horrified at the name spinster. But again, I'd already committed that this is entertainment, and spinster is very linked to Forster in a way, you know, mm. or certainly the the film of a, a Room of the View. So those tentacles were starting to go out. So I had them, and I thought, great, you know, let them be lesbians having a lover's tiff because, you know, there was very there were lots of kind of unmarried women who were in the art world. You know, so it's not a big leap at all and and I love the fact that they were so oblivious to this these this artillery fire, and really, it was just about the quality of the wine and you know because you know things had been a little bit short or food and, and access to drink during those sort of the German occupation, and that just what a lovely place to start and so I had my two women to start with, and I had Evelyn and then I've of course got Ulysses and it's like, oh my goodness. And they inhabited completely different universes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I played around with Evelyn and then I was like, okay, I do want her to be meet Forster in the pensioni simi. So that would be something else. And what is Ulysses going to do? Well, he has to get back to London because they all went back to London or they went back to England rather. So he has to go back there. So what kind of, what is he going to walk into? And it's like, well, of course he's going to walk into a pub you know, English pint. So it's really just following what I knew and who would be there. And, and I think it was that. I don't, I don't plot anything. You know, okay. it's, it's, it's just, I tend to research as I need it. So I don't sit there and do loads and research. I make loads of notes and then forget about it and then write. That's not how I do it. I research, I might come up against a wall and I go, okay, I need to know well, what was happening in 1951 or what was, and then I'll I'll start using that. So it's it's a big chaos and a lot of trust and a lot of, as I said before, following the creative instinct, which mm. I do trust now. So even if it sends me off in this direction of like go right, where previously I'd been left, I will go right because I know there will always be something to mine there.
0: Yeah. And so you you say you didn't you don't plot. When you sit down to write, you know, each day or each writing session, is it just basically launching in and seeing what happens and where the characters take you? Yeah.
1: I mean, once you get underway, you start mm. to know the characters or you start to have a new one and you, you start to play around with them and, and scenarios. So I wouldn't, I don't really write, I don't write linearly. Sometimes it just happens that I do. I get back into it. I'll reread a little bit of the last stuff that I've done to get back into tone. Even, you know, you might be feeling crap that day, but there needs to be some kind of lightness on the page. So just to remind myself. And if if I feel inspired, then I'll carry on with that. But some days I won't. I'll just go, oh, I don't know what I'm doing at this next bit. Oh, but I know that I saw when I woke up this morning or when I was dozing, I saw this beautiful scene that I want to write. And then I will write that scene. You know, often I find writing emotional scenes... We'll also ground the piece. So I might be completely, I do 100 pages away from where I just left off. But if I have a real, real strong attachment to a scene with kind of an emotional pulse, I find that I always do that because I, I feel I get to know my characters that way mm. and what their needs are or what they're missing. So I will do that. And yeah, that's it. I mean, that's, that's all I can really say. I will write what I can write on the day. I don't do what a lot of people are told to do and what a lot of people do. I don't get to a first draft ever. I, my first draft is generally made up of 15 or 16 drafts before I actually finish the piece. Right, okay. Time, I'm very close to giving it in. So it's completely, I suppose the, the way I describe it would be, it's like a sculpture, that you're taking away everything that it's not. Mm. so that you will always have a faint outline in your mind, but you then have to get rid of a lot of stuff. So you take away everything it's not as I go along. And I know, and, you know, maybe that's obviously the first book that wasn't published and then Rabbit, I did get to the end of a a standard first draft that you might write in a number of weeks, but it doesn't work for me anymore. I don't, I, I, I can't follow my instinct, you know, when I'm doing that. If you look at my folder for still life, my goodness, there's draft after draft after draft. Now, that doesn't mean a draft is that I'm going through a completely new right. version. It might mean that I've come to a crossroads and before I sent character off right, and actually it hasn't worked. So the next draft will be that I send them left. So what I am doing is I'm absolutely saving and keeping everything, but I'm just experimenting with where I want them to go.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. A really interesting process. So you're sort of going backwards and forwards all the time and and changing and revising as you go, but continuing to move forward. Yeah, I do. Because
1: I I started certainly with this book, I realized that it because of the size, it was a process of selection Mm -hmm. more than ever. You know, I mean it is, but I understood what that really meant. So for instance, when it came to editing, the major edit with my editor, she was saying, I'm not sure about the ending, you know, so the 1901 section. I said, I think it can only go there, but I will try. And she said, yeah, let's try. And I gave her another, I tried another version and it was like, no, it's so wrong. And she says, it's just the lead up. And I said, exactly. It's not the ending that's wrong. It's the lead up. Right. And that was the beauty that starting to say, actually, everyone's focusing on this scene. Or in another version of another book, you know, you might have an editor who says, I really, really that scene shouldn't be there. And you go, I know it should. So, so what is wrong? What is, why are you seeing that that's not right? And it's quite often what goes before. Yeah. So it's not yeah. always what is being highlighted. And I thought that was really fascinating for me to sort of see that it's not always the obvious. It's mm. how you come to that scene that mm. can often be right, the tone of how you've come to a certain scene. So yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. It's really fascinating. One thing I did want to ask you about is the narrative style of your writing is, so for instance, in Still Life, we're not just in one character's point of view. Your point of view is sort of shifting all the time. It's this, you know, beast that, that goes with the flow type thing. Is that exactly how you write it? You know, it's just basically how we're reading it in that end product with the, the different shifts in point of view. It's coming out of your head that way. Yeah,
1: but but I mean, mm. it's two years. What you're reading is two years mm. of work. Mm. It doesn't come out on the page like that. I was looking at my morning pages of that period of time. And for the first year, I was in despair. You know, I had no idea what I was doing and how it was going to come together at all. And it didn't come with sort of m- so many multiple points of view. But then I did one particular phrase. I got into the habit because I, obviously I knew it was a big book and I needed to keep some forward motion. And then I, I got into the, the style of what I call the roundup paragraphs. You know, in 1951, it brought this and this and this and, right. and Ulysses was doing this. And, and, and it's all a slightly incongruous. So it's basically like sitting down with a friend going, look, I just got to tell you. So and so he was doing this and she was doing this. And that's what happened here. And, this, and then suddenly I got it. And it was like, oh, right, I can repeat that. That's, a, that's great to move people through things. Mm. That's great to have that. And then we can have a pause. And then we can, you know, we can enjoy some scenes. But once I've done that once or twice, the reader will know that it's okay. We're not going to be dissecting this book like, oh, my God, scene by scene. We're cracking on through the years. And I'm just yeah. giving you the milestones. And it was those paragraphs where I brought everybody in and could give them a little bit of a highlight. And so really we are still keeping the major characters as the, as the point of view. So mostly Ulysses, and then there's a bit of Cressy, mm. and, and Peg when she's there. But, but the heart will be, will, will be the major ones. But then, you know, I like writing the other ones, and I thought, well, I think if I like them, I think people will like the others. You know, very much what Tim Winton did with Cloud Street. I read Cloud Street years and years and years ago, but I always remember loving this ensemble this theatrical Mm -hmm. ensemble piece and thinking one day could I write my version of it I would love to write my version of that and still life is my version of that fabulous I know he's his was what 20 years something like that and I know I've doubled that but but it was being so affected by his the his brilliant portrayal of people and and lots of people and Mm. lots of points of view and lots of hopes and dreams that that I was absolutely drawn into that, and I, I think always somewhere, when you admire something, a writer, a film, whatever your your medium is, that you you want to do your version because how that made you feel, you want others to hopefully feel.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when you're writing like that in that big way, I guess, Sarah, when did you get to the point where you thought, okay, I'm done you know, I'm ready to actually, you know, start editing this with an editor to, to send it on to the publisher. How do you know when you reach the end, I guess?
1: My final deadline, basically. it has been pushed and pushed because of, you know, it was big. I'd wanted, I think at one point I said, I think it's two books and publishers aren't too keen on that unless you started off that way and you right. sold them two books. I still think it could have been two books because we, we did eventually edit about 17,000 words. You know, there was a lot more that we could have gone through. Um, it was, it was a final deadline, was end of August. So I knew, mm-hmm. I knew I had to, basically that was it. And that in a, in a way shaped the last. But also I knew the 1901 section was, was this story and, and I knew that it was now, it was also coming together where you go, but well, of course it is because it starts with Evelyn and her story and then we get mm-hmm. her story. And, and that was the ending. In the book, we have a different ending. but That was part of editing. So I had that. And also I was away trying to hammer out the last of it and a friend was reading it and she walked in one day and walked into my room. She said, you can't kill Evelyn. And I went, okay. <laughs> and, and I hadn't, but there was, it was a different ending. There was what I call a roundup ending okay. of what happened to the characters after the curtain comes down. Right. And it was in there. And I thought, well, normally I wouldn't listen to somebody in, in the creative, but I made a contract, joy and entertainment. Mm. I need to listen because this is really important. I don't know the effect my book is having. So, you know, my partner's read it. I was starting to feel the effect. But when she said that, it was like, okay, I leave it here now. I just, I finish it here. And originally I gave it in where it had finished on Evelyn's speech, where it says, but it's still life in all its beauty and complexity, Mm. you know. And that was the original where we finished it, which seemed a fair place. You know, it was almost that circular narrative.
0: Because yes. although people
1: say, "Well, it's Ulysses' story," I, I disagree. I don't think so. I think it's an equal one, and it, and Evelyn is so important for me. And I, for me, she is, she is that slow beating heart of the book. So it was very important to sort of give her the the curtain call, I suppose. And yeah. then, of course, in the thing, it was all changed, which I totally go with as well. The edit was brilliant. Edit
0: yeah it's great to have those outside eyes isn't it at that point yeah totally how would you suggest I mean you've you have got that experience I guess of acting and and stepping into another person a character skin you know in in their acting sphere do you Mm -hmm. think that that's helped you in creating your characters and how would you suggest that that writers actually go about really stepping inside their characters as they're writing
1: Yeah, no, I think it has. I mean, it's, you know, acting it's character driven, isn't it? It's what you learn yeah. about inhabiting a character. So I mean, that's, that was a long time ago now. But I have mm. no doubt that that does influence when I start to get a character. It influences the dialogue. I think dialogue is very important. And I think you need to listen to people speaking, eavesdrop. You know, mm. if you're in a cafe and you, you want to be inspired, don't go to the furthest table and not always, anyway. Go to the furthest table in the quiet corner and just try and sit. Place yourself next to a group of people and listen to, to what people say and how they say it and the rhythm of how they say it. You know, it's really important because sometimes we get our dialogue from television and, and often it's bad television. Although television today, different to my time, is pretty, it's pretty brilliant. Mm. But, you know, just be aware. Just, just listen to people because they're fascinating. I mean, we have, I, I, it's silly to say class structure, but we have, we do have a structure in this country and how do people say things, you know, and that's always mm. interesting. You know, I travel on the bus a lot, so people reveal so much on their phones. When
0: they're talking and, on their phone and you're listening. Yeah. yeah,
1: and you're just, like, oh, my God, gold dust. You know, so it, it is about that and taking time to listen to other people and the way they say things, because that, of course, is, is what acting is. It's, it's what good writing is really so I would say dialogue and also once I start to have the character or I'm playing around with two characters in their banter then I always read things out loud reading things out loud is is a really sure way of knowing that it's your voice and it's always it's always that moment where you've felt a little bit maybe daunted or a bit doubtful of your ability where you go to the thesaurus and you get a really really classy word and it's always when you read back the paragraph, it's that word that has to go because <laughs> it's not you. And so it's good to do that. It's good to, to, to catch yourself out in a gentle way and go, you know, I am enough. The words I have are enough. The greatest writers, you know, about the many, many books. But, but what I think is, a, who I think is a writer's writer is he, Elizabeth Strout. And it's a great uh, exercise to go through Olive Kitteridge to see the simplicity of the writing. And the effect of the writing and to see what she's done structurally, you know, as well as Muriel Spark. She's another great one to learn by. I was reading recently Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And simple writing doesn't mean that it's, it's easy read or it's too mm. simple. Simple writing is very clever because what you're doing is you're allowing the story to dictate the words rather than the words to dictate the story. And sometimes that's a very different thing, that the volition of the story will just carry what you want to say. And that's the really that's the, the best way. Other times you start reading a story and you go, oh, my God, what is this? It's so cluttered. There's just too many words, too many words for what they want to say. Mm. Unnecessary. For me, it's unnecessary. It's not my enjoyment of things. I just like those clever ones who can weave five, five words into something that is heartbreaking And you just sit there going, how on earth did you do that? You know, as you're wiping away the
0: tears or you're laughing, how did you Mm. do that? So I love Olive Uh Kitteridge. It's fantastic, isn't it?
1: It's a great learning book. It's Mm. a great book for people to read, enjoy, and if if people are starting out writing or they're not sure, just, you know, be a bit nerdy with it as I do and just sit down and work out the points of view and work out a book that's called Olive Kitteridge that rarely has her, the protagonist in each. In chapter, you know, work out how clever, why? Why have they done that? You don't need to go to school for that. You can actually just sit with it yourself And because ultimately it's how it affects you and how that brilliance comes out in you and, and you know, how you can play with that. So, yeah, that's sort of what I do. Mm.
0: Well, speaking of reading out loud, Sarah, I've got a little snippet from Still Life. Would you mind if I just read, read you that and then just pick your brain a little bit about... The writing and revising of it? She walked out into the glinting light and slid her sunglasses onto her face. She wasn't quick to her destination, sidetracked as always by trails of wisteria cascading over the walls of private villas or the shy splendour of a magnolia tree on the verge of blossoming. Art and life intertwined. The predominance of blue mow flowers in and around the city astonished her, a compelling stream from February to May. Violets, wisteria, iris, not forgetting the summer cornflower that had been a noble bed for her and a her in some secluded meadow, in some secluded decade. The blue against a burnt umber or ochre wall, the blue against lush grass, against a white linen shirt, unbuttoned and splayed, a blue of such staggering intensity, the memory too easy to find in the opaque past. Flesh and love always next to blue, such a precocious display of spring. So beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's quite good. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah, but I can say it because some of those descriptions were Stella' Precocious display of spring was Stella, oh, And it's God. how I, wo- I weaved her words into it. Mm. You know, writing like that, you write. It doesn't come out like that. It rarely comes out like that. And then you do have moments. I don't know whether, you know, some of that might have been 18 months in when, you're, it's very easy to get into that quiet, transcend, transcendent place, mm. and you just mm-hmm. write it. And yeah, it's some of that is is lovely. But do I remember writing it? No, no. In a way, it's hard to take ownership. <laughs> I mean, I you know what I mean? It's, it's almost
0: like somebody else has written it.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. and that doesn't happen often. We know it doesn't happen often, mm. but there are moments where you are so in this in your book and you know your book so well, and you know the rhythm of your book, and you know the characters so well, that actually there are some days where the heavens shine and the light shines through, and you are at peace, and you are so fluid with your creative process that you can write like that, or you can write from, from your pure voice, and, and other people will write theirs. You know, they don't have to. Nobody has to write like I write. Because everybody has their own version of that. And that's what's important. You know, that's when I'm in the groove in something, that's how I can write. Do I do it every time? No, I don't do it every time. Mm. Do I aim for that? I don't even know if we aim for it. I think we just aim for the feeling of when it's happening because we know when it happens and it's on the page. You can sit back. And I think it's okay to go, do you know what? That's, that's pretty good. You know, for me, that is pretty good you know and it's pretty good because actually i'm saying exactly what's in my heart and i'm saying what's in my mind in the way that i want to say it and i think it's it's okay to acknowledge that i think we have to because that's part of our own growth and what we're ha- wanting but also we also know these moments are fleeting if you're mm-hmm. not going to acknowledge it what's the point in having it you know that's what stella used to say if you don't acknowledge that you have it and you're not grateful for it Then you don't have it. I think we're told that we always have to. You know, modesty is a different thing. But I think if you do, if you if you have nailed words in the way that you really hope to, I think it's a good thing to just say, "Yeah, I did it all right then." Yeah, and I think that is that is it's a lovely piece of writing, and I'm Mm. glad that I managed that. But. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not all the time. It's not we all the time. We don't always feel
0: like that. Yeah.
1: We don't feel like that. And <laughs> yeah. thank you for reading it out. Because yeah. as I said, you know, there were two or three sentences that weren't mine, they were mm. Stella's. Mm. And, and it was almost like an exercise to have this her beautiful description of spring. And for her, the wisteria. Because once we walked over the Ponti alle Grazie, there was a tiny kind of tabernacle chapel there. And just before there was a private villa and she always knew for her there was there was this seasonal aspect to the city. And she knew she'd been there so long. She was the, she reckoned she was the first to know when the swallows arrived, And then the first to know when the wisteria was about to mm-hmm. burst forth and it was on this wall next to this tabernacle. And so we would walk and she would say these little things precocious display of spring was definitely hers and a couple of others. And so in reading it out, it's just like, oh, my God, I'm back there with her.
0: Yeah, yeah, reliving it. It's beautiful. What would you say was the biggest challenge in writing Still Life, Sarah? And, and conversely, what would you say was the biggest joy in creating it? The
1: challenge was just writing about a city I didn't know until i got over mm. that aspect. And I got over it because I was there. I got a small grant, and I was there for a month in January 2019. And just lived there on the square. And then I realized that actually for, for someone who's quite a creature of habit, as I am, you just you just live the same way as you do in London. You're just in Florence. You know, you, you find the cafe <laughs> that you go to and you go to the market and there's all this produce, but oh my God, no, I just need to cook what I always cook. So you cook what I always cook. Not quite the same with the characters, but the fact is that I didn't have to worry. I just placed them there and they would get to know the city in their own time but what they would come with with their insecurity and and not knowing people and probably wouldn't know people. That was another thing. I thought, how am I going to write about Florentines? And it's like, you don't write about Florentines because Florentines actually don't mix too much with outsiders. And that doesn't mean outsiders from another country. It means outsiders from another region. So that was great. It's like, oh, good. So all the people my lot mix with, they'll be what they called migrants. But again, it's not a country migration. It's a region migration. Mm-hmm. So people might have come from Sicily or Emilia-Romagna, that kind of stuff. So it was working out how to write about a city from the point of view of my people. And basically they just swapped London for Florence. Yeah. So the pub, Michelis was the pub. That, when I started, I could have, I could start to be free with that. You know, there was no constraints. Florence would just be there. Florence, there'll be things I don't know about Florence because these characters won't, you know. And that, conversely... The fear often becomes the joy because what you really worry about, once you've understood it, you can have fun with it. So I think it was mainly that really mm. is, is writing about place in a way that I hadn't done before and, and working out how to do it, you know. And, and yeah, I think that probably would be, have been it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, you've been so generous with your time, Sarah. I've loved chatting to you. But before I let you go, could you perhaps give us what would you say would be your four top tips for writers out there who might be listening about just about anything to do with writing that comes off the top of your head basically. Well yeah if
1: you just feel you want to write something write something. You know it doesn't have to be a novel. Hmm. You know it doesn't have to be a short story. I think people go I I, you know I just want to get something done. You might be a memoir, but just write. Just write it. Don't don't think about the end point. You know and also when you are writing or if you are involved in a creative um, writing group, or and you are aiming for the novel, finish it, get to the end. Mm-hmm. And get to the end, and don't start worrying about publish- being published or getting an agent. You know, that's way, way, way down the line, and it will interrupt your creative flow. Make this novel the best it can be for you, you know, and listen to feedback, but be very careful with who you share your work with. You know, sometimes we are nervous and I do it too. We get a bit nervous about something we've written or it's not going well enough. And we show it too soon mm. because actually we want somebody to say, oh, it's brilliant.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're only showing
1: them because we know it's not brilliant. And then of course they come back and go, oh, I think you could do a bit better. And it's like, but I always knew that it's a game. So don't be very careful. Work out who are the people you respect who you want to show it to. And then you're going to, you know, work out who's, because certainly if you're in a group, you're going to get a lot of feedback, conflicting feedback Mm. often. So just be very, very careful with your your creative baby here. Yes. So get to the end, always finish it before you start thinking about the other stuff. Read, Mm. read people who are so much better than you. Reread, work out why a sentence moves you. You know, what's gone before, what's gone afterwards, how did they do it, that kind of stuff. And what else? Just know that everybody has fear and doubt. Every time I start a book, I have no idea what I'm doing. And there's a lot of tears and there's a lot of anxiety. And it it doesn't go, I don't think, because every every time you look at a blank page. So you won't be alone. It's all part of the process. Don't get despondent by it, even if you have months of just feeling, you know, and just and, and also acknowledge if you think there's you've written a good page of writing acknowledge it you know mm. start, to, I love start that. to start to be start to be your editor you know start to acknowledge the good bits and it, and if you print it out highlight it highlight the good bits of your book while you're going through so that those days when it's despondent you know that you're also capable of that
0: yeah fantastic advice I think that's a great place to end on, Sarah. Okay, okay. get on with your day. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, The Facebook page, Writes for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.